going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God, the Father. Thanks, Dave. One of the daunting things about uh, giving a talk from the Bible is that I'm going to be speaking about a person who's actually here listening to everything that I say. And you'll be listening... Uh, not only to what I say, but in as much as I'm saying what he's saying, you'll be listening to him as well. And so I think it's very important we pray, uh, because God is here with us, that we hear him clearly, that I'm able to communicate that, and that we respond with soft hearts, willing to hear what he has to say and take it on board. So please join with me in prayer. Our loving Father, we are aware that we have the privilege of gathering today uh, in your presence Uh, and that we'll be hearing from you by your spirit and through your word. And so we pray that you'll help us not to harden our hearts, uh, but to be open, to be dissected, to be shown how we are and how we should be and how we can be. We pray that we will see Jesus more clearly as a result of opening the scriptures today and that we'll be encouraged and challenged and inspired by the person of Jesus Christ. We ask that this passage in Philippians chapter 2 will shape the way that we respond to you and the way that we treat others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you've got this little booklet, this is a big help. I know that it's always tricky when you're not sitting at a desk to juggle Bibles notes and everything else so the outlines of the talks actually have the the bible passage printed in them and so um, it it won't be a bad thing necessarily if your bibles are closed and you're resting your book on it I won't feel that you're somebody who ignores the bible because I know that it's printed here but you you handle it as you can Um, it's a tricky thing too for me to know at times why I might be invited to speak at a men's conference Um, well it's I've only ever been invited to speak at a women's conference once and, and there was no confusion. They just wanted a, a woman and a man that particular year. Uh, but what is it that qualifies you to speak at a men's conference? Uh, it, it could be that uh, I fulfil the roles of lots of men. Uh, that is, I'm a son and my dad's still alive. He's 80. Uh, I'm a husband and have been for 32 years. I'm a father. I've got four kids. I'm a grandfather. I've, as of this week, got two grandkids. Uh, it could be that. You know, I, I cover a lot of bases, don't I? I'm a brother as well, cousin. I could keep going, uncle and all those sorts of things. And relationships are pretty important, so I feel like I'm reasonably qualified to identify with probably most people in this room uh, with those set of relationships. But I think sometimes when you kind of think about men's ministry, you think of blokey sorts of stuff. And, and so who's going to be a man's man that will come 
uh, to speak is, is it the fact that I have a, a great passion for footy. Uh, I was born into a family that had a passion for footy. I was born in Melbourne and, of course, Melbourne goes berserk over the AFL and, and my nana, uh, that is my mother's mother, uh, told me that when I was very, very tiny that I had to barrack for Carlton. Uh, and, and the reason I had to barrack for Carlton was because her dad played for Carlton. Uh, I've got uh, a book at home called The Old Navy Blues and there is a list of all the players who've ever played for the club Carlton. And in 1904 and 1905, there is my great-grandfather, Jack Chapman. Uh, now, of course, we've moved to a state and a territory, in fact, where AFL is less prominent. Uh, rugby and, and soccer and rugby league and AFL are all competing for people's attention. And somehow or other, I found myself the chaplain to the Brumbies. That's a rugby union. That's a, another sport. There's a little bit of it in Launceston, but not much. And uh, I, I've had a son who's grown up passionate about rugby because that's been his world. Or it could be the fact that I've got a man cave. Uh, I've got my own little room. Well, it's quite a big room, really. Fiona tells me it's the best room in the house and there's all sorts of, of interesting things in there. It could be that I brew my own beer. Well, it's not actually beer. It's ginger beer and I drink it with my grandson. What is it that would qualify me? Well, I think there's actually something that does qualify me and it's none of that stuff to speak here today. I think it's that I share something with each and every one of you. I, I, I'm not meaning to be rude at this point, but there is something that is common to each of us that I'm not proud of and nor should you be, but it's important we identify this. And that is I struggle with selfishness and I struggle with pride. And I don't know you personally. Some people here I've never seen before, but I know this about you that you do too. And the way that I know that is God tells us in his word that it's a human condition. There's a women's conference going on in Canberra at the moment and they could say the same thing. They struggle with it as well. But for now, let's focus on us as blokes. I struggle with pride. I, I don't like giving in. I like getting my own way. I, I, I like to be recognised. I don't like being overlooked. Second place is for losers and I like to be acknowledged. It, it's a struggle at times, my pride. And I would have thought I might have got over my pride by now, but each time I think that I've got over my pride, I realise that I'm proud about the fact that I've overcome my pride and so I've, I've got to face it all again. Selfishness, well, I have an inbuilt desire to be comfortable. I have an inbuilt desire to get things my own way, uh, not to be distracted, not to be uh, turned to other things than the things that actually excite me. And that means I struggle. It means I actually have problems in relationships. With my wife, it'd probably be the most classic example. See, when I want to be the centre of attention, when I want things my way, and, and she would actually like things to be different, then we've got conflict. And conflict has been something that we've experienced um, most of our married life in different forms, one way or the other. And it's a problem I bring into the marriage. I have problems with church because of this as well. I'm a pastor and I'm selfish. And I therefore want things to go my way. But what if other people in the church want things to go their way? And of course, you know that experience as well. And, and it has all sorts of implications. And we'll talk about some of them for our use of money, our, our attitude to our time and, and whether we choose to serve other people and all this sort of thing. When we're struggling with selfishness and we're struggling with pride, then we have a problem. And so one of the reasons we're looking at Philippians chapter 2 today is because it's so absolutely relevant for blokes who struggle with pride and selfishness. And we're going to be looking at Jesus, and as we look at Jesus, we will see a whole new way, a whole new way of life. Well, let's, uh, let's get into this passage. Um, Philippians chapter 2 is going to be the focus for today. Uh, we're not going to deal with everything in the passage, but we'll cover quite a bit of territory. And, and it starts up there in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, I, I don't want to overlook something that's very obvious as we start this. And that is the assumption in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the letter to the Philippians is that he's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. You can see it there where he talks about being united with Christ. Christ. 
He talks about sharing in the Spirit. Now, that's something that is very specific. You, if you are united to Christ, if you share in the Spirit, then you, you are Christian. So he's got Christians in view when he's writing this chapter. And, and I think we need to recognise this because one of the, the great dangers, and I think it's a prevalent danger right across our country, is that people can misunderstand what it is to be a Christian. And we can fall into this danger of thinking that, that it's stuff that we do that make us Christian. And, and if we live a certain way, if we do a certain number of things, if we act in a particular way, then, then we are actually being Christian. And many people that I talk to think that, that a Christian is somebody who does Christian things. And I want to say to you that no, that is no more the case than, than, than me going to a Thai restaurant and eating Thai food making me a a Thai citizen. You can do the things that Christians do, but not be Christian. And so we need to get this right. And, and the reason that I'm starting on this note is that even the guy who wrote this letter, even the Apostle Paul, as he wrote the letter to the Philippians, tells us that he struggled with that issue. He actually got what being a Christian meant, what being right with God meant, wrong. And he's at pains in chapter 3, and we're just going to touch on a little bit of chapter 3 to make sure that they understand what a Christian really is. So they're there in your notes. I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 3, verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, and by flesh I think what he's talking about is, is the things that I am, the things that I do, my pedigree, my performance... He says, if anyone else has, has reasons to put confidence in this stuff, I've got more. And then he goes on to talk about his pedigree. I've been circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, when it, when it came to being one of the genuine people of God, this guy won the Brownlow every year. Hands down, this was the most seriously well-credentialed person of God. The, the nation, the tribe, the practices, he had it all. And we're going to see what he makes of that in a minute. And, and I'll tell you what, my antenna go up when I read this because I think I'm pretty well credentialed when it comes to being Christian. See, my grandfather was a minister. My father was a minister, even at Margaret Street Methodist Church over there. I was born when he was at Bible college. I mean, if you're born into the right part of you know, the world, then surely that ought to be it. And, and right through my early years, I went along to church. I went along to Sunday school. I went along to Christian Endeavor. And I went along to youth group. And I did all of these things, many more, and more often, and more regularly than the people around about me. In fact, I can remember the first time that a Sunday went by when somebody took me away from going to church and I struggled with the guilt for years afterwards because that was so much a part of who I was. And it continued on. At university, I got involved in Bible study groups. I, I ended up doing a lay preaching course. I've since been to Bible college. I've got a theological degree. I've got a master's degree to follow that up. I, I've actually planted churches. I've been involved in student ministry. And I, I've, I've even spoken in Launceston at a men's convention. Surely that credentials me. You know, when I talk to my mates who aren't Christian back in Canberra, if they were weighing up their performance with mine, they'd say, OK, Dave, tick, you've got to be Christian. And what Paul says is, no, it, it, that's not the way. And, and nor, nor is it his performance. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of this stuff here, but basically what he's saying is that his performance was fanatical. He was so committed to living to serve God that because he thought the church had got it all wrong and he had it right, he was even persecuting them, putting them in prison and was responsible for the deaths of some believers. He was absolutely devoted to what he was doing. But he says... Look at verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. See, Paul used to think that his pedigree and his performance were gaining him points with God, and now he realises that it was not credit he was getting, it was debit. It wasn't making him closer to God, it was actually shifting him further away. And that is hard to understand. Here is a guy who in our terms was like me. He, he grew up in a whole church environment and he was passionate about what he was doing. But when it came to being right with God, he said it didn't give him any bonus at all. It's interesting, when we, um, when we moved to Canberra from Sydney, uh, we bought our first home. and We, we got a, a loan with uh, what's now the St George Bank. And it was one of those loans that was set up for first home buyers where they forced you to pay extra in the first 12 months so that you reduced the impact of the loan over the long term. And it's, it's a good thing to do. It was actually forced saving on our part. And so we were making those payments. And then as my wife got a job, we actually started to make some extra repayments. And if I'd been asked the question, how are you going with your mortgage I would have said, look, we're in credit, we're doing well, because we were forced to be like that by St George and we'd added extra ourselves. Until one day I got a letter. I got a letter from a solicitor, a solicitor representing the St George Bank, who told me that our payments were seriously in arrears and that we needed to actually make contact with them and sort out our payments or we were going to default on our mortgage. This was an official solicitor written letter and I was absolutely confused I thought hang on now we've been paying ourselves as we had to we've been paying extra because we wanted to surely we're in credit but no we were in debit why was that well because they've got the account number wrong and I've been paying off somebody else's mortgage <laughs> now great confidence in our banks hey <laughs> now Everything I did, and I did a lot in that year, was actually loss to me. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is everything that he did, and he did a lot, was actually loss to him. In fact, he's less flattering and he's less kind of um, socially polite than that. He says it's actually garbage. Now the word for garbage here is the word excrement. And, and in my kind of... Uh, new Australian vernacular Bible, what he's saying is I consider all these things to be crap compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. Now we need to grasp this, I think, because the average Aussie and sadly so many churchgoers believe that the more we do for God, the more he will accept us. And this is not the case. It is only by grace and so what Paul says here in verse 9, what he wants is to gain Christ, to be found in him and not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that is what we do ourselves, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is on the basis of faith. And friends, what do you want? Do you want to stand before God one day and say, look, this is what I've done, here is the list, here's where I've come from, here's my family, the, these, these things are a record of my performance, will you accept them? Or do you want to say, look, I'm, I've got nothing to offer, I'm, I'm trusting the fact that you said you'd accept Jesus' death on my behalf. Which do you want? Self-righteousness? or God-given righteousness through Jesus. That, that's the contrast. So I, I start with this because I, we're going to be talking a lot about changed attitudes, changed behaviour. What I don't want you to see is that somehow I think if you work hard and try harder, God will be more pleased with you and accept you. I want you to see what God has done for you through Jesus. And for that to lead to transformed thinking and transformed living. All right, well, what does he have to say? Back into Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. What, what he's on about here is, he, is getting people to change their mind. 
In verse 1 here, he says if you've got any encouragement, any comfort, uh, any sharing, any tenderness, any compassion. In, in other words, he's saying if you're trusting in Jesus, if you know how good God has been to you, if, if you've got all this stuff and you understand all this stuff, then let it show. Let it make a difference. Don't keep it locked up. Let it flow out into the person you are. That's what he's saying. In other words, he's saying, if you know Jesus, then be a Jesus person. If you're connected to God by his spirit, then, then live the spiritual way. Don't, don't have this disconnect between what you believe and the way that you live. He wants them to be transformed. And the, the transformation starts with the mind. Um, in verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Like-minded, one mind, the same spirit, and so on. He, he wants us to be connected together, to be thinking and acting the same way. Now, he's not talking about becoming clones. He's not talking about you know this, this kind of robotic, uh, identical, cookie-cutter Christians. This isn't a kind of special clique when he says to have the same love and the same mind. He's not kind of saying, I want you to join this same club and have this secret handshake and for you all to be super kind of secretively different. No, what he's saying, it's not that he wants them to become more like me or for me to become more like you. It's that he wants us both, he wants us all to become more like Jesus. And we'll see that in a minute. His template for what this is to look like starts with the mindset of Jesus. Have the mind of Jesus is what he's going to go on to in verses 5 and following. And so we're going to need to see what Jesus did and how Jesus thought and so forth. But what he does is having talked about Okay, if you know Jesus, if you have the Spirit, if you're going to be of the same mind, this is how it should work out in practice. And he moves straight into application in verses 3 and 4. Here's what it will look like. Uh, verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, this is pretty simple I think to understand this isn't kind of complicated sophisticated kind of theology and practice this is really very very simple but while it's simple to understand it's actually incredibly difficult to put into practice and why is it so hard well it's because of our character flaws of pride and selfishness it's because it actually cuts against the grain. It's, it, it's pushing us to go against the flow of the way we would naturally respond. Because we naturally are concerned for ourselves and this is all about looking to others. In fact, it's a useful exercise, I think, to insert our own names into the application and kind of feel this. Let, let me try and do that. I'll do it with myself, but you might like to think your name when I use my own. So Dave, me, Macca, verse 3... Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But rather, in humility, value other people above Dave, above me, above you. And Dave, don't look to your own interests. Dave, don't be all concerned for yourself, but look to the interests of the other people who are around about you. You see, it's, it's really simple and it's really practical. And it's basically saying, Dave, be prepared to come second. Dave, don't think that you need to be number one. Dave, don't think that it's all about you. Dave, don't think that, that what you do has to satisfy your interests and your future and, and your own agenda. Dave, be prepared to look around about and see that you're not the only person in this world. And more than that, value the other people around you more than you value yourself. It's really simple, isn't it? To understand. But it's incredibly difficult to put into practice. But that's what God's calling us to. He's, he's calling us to stay in the background. He's calling us not to put ourselves out at the front. He, he's calling upon ourselves to think about more people than me. For me to be willing not to get my own way. 
to be prepared to get excited when other people get their way. To, to, to actually rejoice in other people being recognised. To, to get excited when people are doing well and when people might not even notice me. That's hard though, isn't it? So hard when we don't get recognised. So hard when somebody else gets the acclaim. So hard when, when somebody is put into the position and you've been looking forward to that and you're overlooked and they have that role. It's, these things are great. These things are difficult because of pride and because of selfishness. But God is calling us to make a commitment to coming second. Now, I've hung around in the sporting world for a long time. I've been a chaplain at the Australian Institute of Sport and a chaplain uh, to the Brumbies uh, Super Rugby team and and I've had uh, involvement in a whole range of sports. Uh, I've got kids who've been actually quite athletic and, and so on. And one of the phrases that, that keeps being used over, the, over these uh, years and in a variety of contexts is that to come second is to be the number one loser. And we can't accept that. And we don't play the sport to come second, we play the sport to win. We don't compete in the race to come second, we compete in the race to win and we'll go all out in order to do that. And friends, I think it is hard for us to accept coming second. I, I think that it's a difficult thing for us to accept that somebody else will be there on the, on the podium and not us. And maybe it's harder for us as blokes than it is for the women. I don't know. But I do know that pride is a very dangerous beast. And it's subtle and it's sneaky. It's close to four years ago now that I was diagnosed with cancer. And over that period of time, uh, I would say that one of the lessons that I have learned is the lesson of humility. And I put it in these terms, that God has humbled me. He's humbled me by taking away my own capacity. There was a time when I, I couldn't, without help, even get out of bed and walk to the toilet. I, I can't exercise in the same way that I used to. My lungs don't function as they should anymore. I'm not able to make the same level of commitments that I did previously. I, I set myself an agenda a year and a half ago to speak at a whole variety of things and I pretty well hit the wall halfway through it. And I would say that God has humbled me in all sorts of other ways as well to do with my dependence upon on my family, my, my friends and, and, and on medical people and a whole range of others. But does that make me a humble person? No, it doesn't. And one of the sad things that I've recognised in myself is that even in being humbled, I've found new opportunities for pride. Because I'm that humbled person and I can be proud of that. And it's sickening as I look into my own soul and see how easy this is to do. There was one occasion where I'd been... Uh, in, I'd, I'd been encouraged by a number of friends to write things and, and to write articles about ministry and about church and about life and about cancer and, and a whole range of things. And I got into a bit of a zone where, where I was able to look out and see others and point out all sorts of problems. And I felt that I kind of had the right to do that because now I'm the humble cancer person. And I thank God that a couple of friends actually had the wisdom to write back and say, hmm... That's a bit harsh, that's a bit ignorant, that's a bit of a rant, and they were right. It's interesting, uh, just before I, I was diagnosed with cancer, I was uh, at a conference, a big national conference in Sydney called Oxygen, and I was invited to be interviewed at that conference uh, by the organisers and the MC about our plans to go to Darwin. And my wife said to me, and she was very, very wise, before I agreed to even do this, she said, I'm not sure whether you should or not because I don't want you to get too proud. And here was I being interviewed above, uh, uh, before 2,500 pastors and Christian leaders around the country as this middle-aged 48-year-old man who's prepared to leave his successful church in Canberra and go up and start again. And I was the poster boy for church planting instead of easy retirement. And then within a few months, I've got cancer. 
Well, oxygen came around again three years later. You know what the organisers did? They invited me to come up and speak about having cancer and serving God with the context of the cancer world and the struggles with health and incapacity and so on. And my wife was a little nervous about this because she said, I don't want you to get proud. I tell you, my wife knows me better than I know myself. And the great danger is that it doesn't matter what situation we're in, it doesn't matter what externally is happening to us, pride is something that is from the inside out. Selfishness kind of works its way out of our, our very character. And God is wanting to change us. Now God doesn't simply tell Christian men what to do, he actually gives us a why and a how. And I just quickly want to say something about one of the whys here, one of the motivations uh, that there is uh, for what he's saying about humility. And it's, it's back at the end of chapter 1. Uh, again, I think it's printed there for you. Here's why. Um, back in verse 27, he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Um, what he's talking here is about walking the talk or, or living out the Christian life. Right? He wants them to, to actually conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. He wants their life to be in keeping with what they believe. And why does he want this? Well, it's because... He wants them, verse 27, to be standing firm in one spirit. See, one of the things that we see through this letter to the Philippians is that Paul is concerned not just for the here and now, but for the big picture. Uh, and the big picture is ultimately something that's seen in the light of eternity. And it's not sufficient to start the Christian walk. He wants to make sure that people finish it. Now, he's confident in God in that whole process, and we'll see that particularly in the next talk. But he wants them to live out what they believe. And the reason he wants them to live it out is so that they will stand firm, so that they will run the race, so that they will be there at the end. He wants them to persevere as believers. And humility is at the very core of what keeps people Christian. Humility is what enables people to remain trusting in Jesus rather than trusting in themselves. You see that? And the great danger is that the longer we've been Christian, the, the more we can start to get proud of our performance as Christians and, and subtly shift from trusting in Jesus to trusting in what we've done. And I can say that as somebody who's been a Christian now for about 40 years, and, and as I kind of sit back and I think about all of my achievements, which I know deep down have nothing to do with making me right with God. I can feel pretty comfortable by that. And that is a great danger. And that is a danger that leads to hell. No, God is calling us to make a commitment to humility. A commitment to letting Jesus come first. A commitment to, to putting other people's needs before our own so that we will be there with God for eternity. And, and friends, that's something that's pressed home to me even more seriously over the last three or four weeks. When I heard that uh, a good friend of mine who had been a member of our staff team at one stage, who'd been an elder in our church, had walked away from his wife and it seems has walked away from a willingness to follow the words of the Lord Jesus. Somebody who was committed to teaching the scriptures, somebody who was committed to calling people to repentance and faith, somebody who was committed to opening up the word and thinking about how it affected a person's life. Now, what I'm hearing from him is a pride and a selfishness that will not change. And that could be you or I. And so we need to look to the Lord Jesus, and that's what he does. So have a look with me at verses 5 and following. Here's how this is to work itself out, and it's an inspiring example. Um, look at verses 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and, and to move on a little, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. What we've got in these few verses is an absolutely extraordinary um, capturing of eternity when you think about it. One of the things I love seeing on, on TV are those kind of time-lapse videos. You know the sort of thing I mean? They sometimes have it with the, the background of the weather and, and, and you see what's kind of video footage of, uh, well, we often have to put up with Sydney weather, right? So of Sydney Harbour. Um, the sun's rising, the clouds are going across the sky like this, and then the sun sets. And you see all of that in about two seconds. And what they've done is they've captured about 16 hours of the day um, in little bursts, and you get this as this extraordinary picture. Or, or another one might be the one where you've got, say, an agriculturalist putting a seed in the ground and putting a bit of water on, and then you actually get to watch with time-lapse photography this, this little bud shooting up and then a stalk and then the whole plant. And, and it doesn't look like that normally, does it? There's a back to this stage, by the way. Um, it, it doesn't look like that normally because it's just too big to take it all in. That's kind of the way verses 5 to 11 work. Uh, because what you've got there is a picture from all eternity with, with the Son of God and his relationship to God the Father from, the, from before all things uh, to him coming to earth dying, rising from the dead and being exalted to his right hand which he will be for all eternity and it's captured in a few words it's just incredible but it's the, the focus of this is on his attitude it's on his mindset so he's not simply telling us this to know who Jesus is he's not simply telling us this as you know, a little exercise in Christology it's not telling us this simply either so that you might get to the very heart of the gospel and know how it is that you can become a Christian, whilst all those things might be true. What he's doing is he's giving us an example of Jesus to show you how humility works itself out. And that is so helpful to us. Um, six verses here, the, the heart of the Christian message. Let, let's take a look. Christ Jesus who is genuinely God. That's the first thing, right? It's, it's not that this is some souped-up human being. It, it's not that you've got God being transformed into something that he wasn't. Um, you, you've got, at the very beginning, Jesus, who is in the very nature of God, he is God from all eternity, uh, entering into our world. And, and that step is absolutely mind-blowing. All power, all authority, all prestige, all privileges chooses not to use any of them for his own advantage. Now, I think we're pretty used to people with power and privilege and authority using things for their own advantage. It's not that many months ago when we saw a certain politician deciding to spend $5,000 on a helicopter to go from Melbourne to Geelong. And we kind of have this cynicism. We know that with more power and more privilege comes more corruption and more evil. But not with God. How does God use his power and his privilege? Well, he uses it not for his own advantage, but he uses it to serve. And friends, we get a window here into the heart of God, what God is really like. God is humble from all eternity. Humility is part of the very character and essence of God. And, and what he's going on to say here is that just as Jesus was not in it for himself, just as Jesus was the son of man who came not to be served by people but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many, just as Jesus was humble, so we are to be humble. In other words, the model for humility comes from God himself. So the godly person will be the humble person. So the Christ-like person will be the person who understands humility. The, the, humility here is something that flows from the very essence of God and God demonstrates how it works itself out. How does it work itself out? Well, Jesus, who is in very nature God, becomes a servant. 
And the word servant here is a little soft. The original is literally a slave. And Jesus demonstrates that that he is prepared to be a slave beyond what people would expect of slaves. There's a great example in John chapter 13 where Jesus is gathered there with his disciples and they're looking at what they can do for him and he says, no, I'm going to wash your feet. And from my understanding of ancient uh, history, you could expect the slave to do a lot of things, but one of the things the slave probably didn't have to do was wash the feet of those who came into the household. I mean, this is walking around in the dust on, on, on stinking leather sandals. This is an extreme thing to do. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to do this for you. And really what he's doing is he's just giving a little glimpse, a, a tiny little picture of what he's about to do, which is going to be way bigger than washing their feet. And we see it here. He's going to take the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He's going to be deeply humbled by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And, and what Jesus is willing to do here is everything. How far is Jesus willing to serve? Well, the whole way. He's willing to be obedient to God, to, to, to put his needs behind the needs of other people so that he will give his life for them on the cross. And when it says here that that he's literally come to die, even death on a cross, it's a a very harsh and confronting statement. The cross has become sanitised in in our thinking these days. You know, we, we see the cross as a symbol on church buildings. We see the cross up front, cross on the front of a Bible, the cross as a piece of jewellery and so on. And we're, we're pretty common... I mean, we're exposed to this. It, it, it's fairly kind of blasé, the cross, isn't it? But really what this is saying is, if I can put it in modern language, Jesus was obedient to death, even death in front of a firing squad. Jesus was obedient to death, even death by lethal injection. That's, that's the kind of vibe that it has. There's nothing cute about this. There's nothing artistic about this. The cross was... Well, it was one of the harshest forms of capital punishment. And you know Christians are actually suffering on crosses even today. A friend forwarded me a news article just the other day of of, of Christians who had been crucified and Christians who had been burned. Today, like in the last week. There's nothing nice about being obedient to death, even death on a cross. We've got to get niceness out of our thinking when it comes to the cross. We've got to think this is, this is bloody. This is violent. This is obscene. And yet Jesus voluntarily goes there. See, this is, this is the lengths that Jesus' humility descends to. It's hard to think you could take it any lower than that, isn't it? Being willing to be crucified... And it's not that Jesus has kind of got a death wish. You know, Socrates had a death wish, didn't he? He he kept talking about the the virtues of suicide and drinking the hemlock or whatever it was. And that's kind of a bit weird. That's a bit twisted. Now, when Jesus said that the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many, when, when Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem and be rejected and killed... When, when Jesus identified his purpose in coming into this world, it, it, there's nothing romantic about it. There's nothing nice about it. It is bloody awful. And he's prepared to do that for you and for me. That is the length, that is the depth, that is the breadth of Jesus' humility. But here's the sting in the tail. What does it say back in verse 5? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Whoa. He's not saying, look, you know, stand back and let your brother go through the door before you. He's not saying, look, you know, you've got a songbook and, and, and the woman beside you hasn't got one, so you give up yours. He's not saying, hey, look, you know... Um, You've won a holiday 
and it doesn't actually occur at the right time of year. So you'll give it to your pastor because you know that he probably can't afford a holiday. Now, all these things might be good things to do, but it's just so darn more serious than that. It's bedrock serious that he would give his life on a cross for you and for me. That's got to grip us. If we don't grasp the nature of the cross, if we don't see how, how hardcore and how serious that is, then we'll just play lip service to humility. And our humility will really be code word for conveniently looking nice to those around about us. But this is costly, this humility. This is the extreme sacrifice. This is death on a cross. This is the one who went to the garden before his execution, praying again and again that God might take this cup from him. This is the one who was in agony, keeping awake, sweating drops of blood, knowing that what he is about to face will cause him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is something that is... is kind of rent apart in the nature of God himself and it is for you and for me. There is no self-interest at all in what Jesus does. And he's saying this is the attitude, brothers. No self-interest. Come second. Don't have any interest in coming first. No. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate humility... The ultimate example of this is there in Jesus and he's saying, friends, this is the attitude. This is the attitude of the Christian. This is what I want from you. This is what it is to follow God. This is what it is to stand firm to the end. This is what it is to live out being Christian. But friends, it's more than simply a humility that gives up for the sake of of giving to others. There's a, there's a really sharp point to this humility. And I think unless we grasp how sharp this point is, we could be incredibly nice and incredibly generous and incredibly humble for no good. And we've got to see what that good is. So coming back to the passage, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is it that Jesus was prepared to be humble, to be obedient to death, even death on a cross? It's so that he could bring people into relationship with God for all eternity. It's so that people might be brought into a relationship where they will willingly bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and Saviour and Christ. That's why he does it. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. That, that's a rescue, that's a buyback, that's so that we might belong to God. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. There's a very sharp focus to what Jesus is doing. Jesus' humility, even to the point of crucifixion, is all about saving people. And I take it, when you read this book of Philippians, that's the sharp edge to the humility that he's encouraging us to have as well. And that is, if we are to have the mindset of Christ Jesus... We won't put ourselves first, we'll be prepared to come second, but we'll have a purpose in doing that, that people might be saved. That's the mindset of Jesus. And that, I think, is what he's calling you and I to have, friends, that, to have this mindset of, of doing all that we can at cost to ourselves so that other people will be saved, that other people will be forgiven, that, that our friends and our family and our neighbours will come into relationship with God, that they will know Jesus that we'll all be united by his spirit. He's calling us to have that mindset. So to, to kind of unpack that, to simplify that, what, what he's saying is be prepared to come second to see your brother become a Christian. Be prepared to be made to look stupid. Be prepared to go without money. Be prepared to give up your time. Be prepared to lose your reputation. Be prepared to lose your life so that other people might know Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's true humility. 
That's what we see from God himself. Friends, in all of this, God is calling us to be in relationship with himself for the long haul, for all eternity. It's, it's wonderful the eternal perspective that there is here in Philippians and, and even in these verses about Jesus, I take it there's encouragement to us to know that even should we give up our life for the sake of serving God and serving others, God will lift us up with the Lord Jesus. That there's an eternal future that makes sense of what we might go without here and now. He wants us to be there in the end. He wants us to live out being Christian and the way to do that is humility. It's a commitment to putting Jesus first and ourselves second. It's a commitment to putting other persons' needs before our own. It's a commitment to second place or third place or fourth place or fifth place or thousands or whatever it might be. And for some of us, I think that needs to start because that's not where we're at. For some of us, it, it, it perhaps needs to begin this morning. We, we need to recognise that, hey, we're not at the centre of the universe. God is. And we need to acknowledge and to take hold of what Jesus has done for us. And, and you couldn't go to a better part of the Bible to really see that, captured in, in, in that time-lapse photograph of the one who from all eternity stooped to become one of us, to die on a cross so that we could be right with God and be raised to be with him forever. And that can be yours. But humility is where it starts. You've got to say, I can't do it on my own. Friends, if the Apostle Paul couldn't do it on his own, you've got no chance, believe me. It doesn't matter what church you belong to. It doesn't matter how many things you've done. It doesn't matter how much money you might give. It doesn't matter how much you think you've gone without. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Will you bow the knee to Jesus? Will you allow Jesus to sit on the podium and not yourself? Because it's liberating, if you will. And it starts there, but friends, know also that it finishes there. We don't start the Christian life by honouring Jesus and then go on to seek our own recognition. It's not that we move on from faith in God to works for God and, and outdo what God has done for us. No, we start and finish by grace. We start and finish in faith, trusting in what God has done through Jesus. If you think that you're shifting away from that, if you think that what God has done for you in Jesus has become something of a remote, distant memory, then now is the time to read and refresh. Now is the time to be asking God to fill you again with, with the joy that you once experienced in the gospel of Christ. Now is the time to recognise again that you could never do it and you can never do it and you certainly aren't doing it and you don't have to because it's Jesus. We need to hear, I think, I've said this already, but the longer we are Christian, and some of you, I would guess, have been Christians for many, many years, the easier it is to shift from this, to kind of move into the, the realm of thinking that we're entitled or that we deserve or that we should be rewarded. And so pride and selfishness can kind of edge their way back in and we might not even see it happening. I reckon the best way to me to find out whether pride and selfishness has crept back in is to go home and simply say to my wife, Fiona, have I become more selfish? Do you think I've got any pride that I need to work on? She'll say, well, by the way, yes, let me show you my book. And uh, <laughs> there'll be plenty there. Really, I don't need that. I just need to look in the mirror, the mirror of my own heart, and I can see it dwelling there. And so God's calling me to root that out. Not to let pride and selfishness take hold, to push it away when I see it, to remember again the wonder of the good news of Jesus and to thank God for that. You know, gratitude is a great expression of humility and it ought to be the character of the Christian life. To read over again the good news about Jesus. Um, a, a famous Christian writer, um, heavily involved with the Navigators ministry, uh, a man by the name of Jerry Bridges visited Canberra, um, must have been 20 or more years ago, and I went along to hear him speak, and somebody asked the question, how have you persevered so long as a believer? And I, I won't forget his answer. He said, I preach the gospel to myself every day. How do you, how do, you do that, they asked. 
I open the scriptures and I see that it's about Jesus and not about me. So there's humility at work, isn't it? Let us do that. Let us encourage one another to do that. Friends, this has practical outworking as well. Let me just kind of try and niggle a little bit deeper with some of you. Is there somebody, and they may be within your church, that you know that you don't get on with particularly well? Is there somebody that there's a bit of tension between you? If you were to have walked in here and seen them, would you have actually walked a different way? Would you cringe? If the one seat that was left was beside that person, would you have looked for another chair and put it somebody else? Uh, Is there somebody like that? Well, Well, friends, here's an opportunity for humility to actually ask them, what have I done? Is there something I need to change? Is there an apology that I should give you? How can we mend this? Because the danger of pride and the danger of selfishness is I think I'm not doing anything until you do, buddy. It's not my fault. Now I weighed this up and I know that you're the one who started it. So you're the one who should finish it. That's a recipe for disaster. Not least of which you won't restore that relationship, but if you take that attitude and you allow that attitude to take root in other parts of your life, then you know who you're going to be in opposition to? The one who made you. The one who saved you. No, you've got to change, God. I know my way. I know what I need. I know what I want. When you get home this afternoon, or tonight, who are you going to see there? Some of you may be living on your own. Some of you might meet up with your wife. You might see your children. You might see your, your mum or your dad or brother or sister. You might see a housemate. How are you going to greet them? How are you going to put their needs before your own? See, I know my temptation when I come home from a weekend like this is, is to be thinking all about myself. And I haven't even given a thought to what they might have gone through. I'll tell you, for some of you who are, who are young parents, if some of you are, then probably what's gone on today is that there's at least been a little bit of difficulty that your wife's had with the kids. And a little bit of empathy might go a long way. See, it's easy, isn't it, to think about what I need when you head back to work on Monday morning talking with your friends. How can humility work itself out? Well, do you have friends who aren't Christian? Is there a way that you could even raise what we're going through now with them? Could, could you bring that into conversation? Humbly, putting Jesus first. When you head back to your churches, how can you take second place in your church? How can you put the needs of others above yourself? Are there opportunities for service? Well, can I put it this way? Are there some tasks that are beneath you? Are there some things that you won't do? Well, why not? Perhaps there are things that are just waiting for you to rise up and do them. And what are you going to do if nobody thanks you when you do it? You're going to get a bit cheesed off? Because people won't recognise what you do at times. They'll forget and... I reckon all that does is show up why we really did it in the first place. Because we like the recognition. But that's not service. That's not humility. Now, we want to see humility, want to see service, look to Jesus. It's a great encouragement, friends. Well, I've just pinched a, a little bit of the passage. We're going to keep going on this, and I'm going to stop there. It's probably enough for us to work on. Um, would you like me to lead in prayer? Yep. How about we do that? I might just pause for a, a minute and let you come before God yourselves in the quietness of your own hearts and minds. Um, perhaps there's business that you need to do with God and then I'll lead from the front in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help me, help us to see our pride, to see our selfishness for what it is and help us to hate it. Lord God, we pray that you will fill our mind with the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be prepared to be nobody. Help us to be prepared to come last, to be ignored, to be opposed and rejected, to suffer and even to die so that we will honour you and so that we will be used by you in bringing the good news of Jesus to others. We pray that out of this meeting you will raise us up as, as your sons to serve you in humility in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, in our churches. Wherever we go and wherever we relate to those around about us, please place it on our hearts to humbly serve others for the sake of Christ. Amen.